When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? This particular podcast, I'm going to focus on Ulysses S. Grant, his last gift to his family in the, in the last year of his life. Many of you know that I have a total man crush on U.S. Grant. There's just so many reasons to admire U.S. Grant. I mean, you can look at his pre-war life in terms of what he did, his, his courage during the Mexican-American War, um, the way that he served the country, the way that he fought and struggled to to serve his family. You can look, obviously, at his Civil War service. As we talked about in my previous episode, I really do believe that without U.S. Grant, that the Union might not have been saved. And if you think I'm drinking a little bit of a Kool-Aid on that, I strongly encourage you guys to read Gene Edward Smith's book on Grant. Ron Chernow comes to a similar conclusion, but there was a lot of different ways in which the United States could have lost the Civil War, or at least come to a, a stalemate. I don't think they ever would have truly lost the war, but I think in terms of a, a stalemate was very possible, especially through the, the fall election of 1864. And we covered that a little bit last time. But there's also the way that he helped our country navigate Reconstruction, which, you know, when you study history, whether it's an undergraduate or in high school, Reconstruction is sort of considered sort of the boring you know, final chapter of the Civil War period, but it was just as dicey as the Civil War. And they were concerned at any moment, either war could break out uh, or that there could be new factions or that maybe the Union wouldn't hold. Um, there was significant turmoil in the South. It was an incredibly difficult time period. Um, and as we talked about in one of my last podcasts, um, you know, it ultimately concluded with the very tragic betrayal of 1877 and the Hayes-Tilden Compromise. So Grant provided very steady leadership during that time. Then there's the world tour after Reconstruction, and, in which he tours throughout the world. And there's all these different people from throughout the world that admire um, Ulysses S. Grant in terms of his service. And he was beloved by people from throughout the United States. But for me, what truly shows Grant's true character is what he did in the last year of his life, what he endured um, as he knew he was essentially near the end of his life. Because I think this really demonstrates the character of Ulysses S. Grant. It tells you everything you need to know about the type of person he was. But I think it also gives us a lesson in terms of you know, turmoil in life and, and how to respond. Because U.S. Grant, time and time again, he kept a clear head in crisis, and he just always kept going. He never, ever gave up. And so we're going to explore a little bit. We, you know, we did a little bit in the previous podcast, but I sort of wanted to amplify this last gift that Ulysses S. Grant gave his family in the last year of his life, because I think it's incredible. You know, anytime you do a biography as good as Gene Edward Smith, you can't cover every period the way that it should be covered. 
so obviously he spends most of his time, Gene Edward Smith in the US Grant biography on the Civil War, the events leading up to it, obviously the battles during it, and then the reconstruction time period. But this last year of Grant's life, I think is itself worthy of a book. And I'm just gonna share with you just a couple snippets of the, essentially the last 10 pages of this book, because to me, it's, um, it really could be almost a standalone movie or book on its own this last year of Ulysses S. Grant. So Grant, one of the things that made him so interesting was that he was not destined for greatness. He was not always Mr. Successful. He was not um, free from failure. He did not live a charmed life. He struggled just like everyone else. And you know, a couple of years before the Civil War, he was so destitute that he was actually selling wood on a street corner in St. Louis. And one of his ex-West Point classmates who knew him had said, Grant, what in the hell are you doing selling wood? It's way beneath you. And he said, well, I'm trying to solve the problem of poverty. He had failed as a farmer. He had failed as a businessman. And he was so humiliated that he even had to go basically beg for a job at his father's um, tannery in Galena, Illinois. And that was what he was doing in that last year before the Civil War. And his father, as much poise and as much tranquility as Ulysses ha Grant had, his father, Jesse Grant, was just this opinionated, excuse my language, but he was a total asshole. And I'm sure he just, you know, when he came back and Grant had to beg for a job, I'm sure he just let, kept on, you know, bird dogging him and giving him a hard time. So he had to go back to his father. And so he, he was in poverty then. During the Civil War, obviously, he did really well as a general. And after the Civil War, he did well. I mean, he was the president of the United States, but at that time, there was no um, essentially pension that presidents would have after the presidency. So they were really left to fend for themselves. And how did he make it after the Civil War? Well, he got a lot of gifts. Um, he did make some investments, which were so moderately uh, uh, successful, but not overwhelmingly successful. Um, Grant um, for whatever reason, he had such clear judgment on the battlefield, but for whatever reason in business, he just, he was sort of gullible. You know, here he was this cold blooded killer in the battlefield, but when it was came in matters of finances, he just, you, you would not want Grant to be your investment banker or your accountant for that matter. So he goes on this world tour, which that could almost be a standalone book, you know, where he, after, so he has these two successful terms. Um, I think he is um, the only duly elected president for two full terms on his own terms. Um, I tell Woodrow Wilson, I mean, there's Theodore Roosevelt, but he was only elected to one term. He, his first term, he, he was he ascended through the vice presidency, I believe it was through Woodrow Wilson. Um, and, then, and then following that, then of course, Calvin Coolidge. But so he was very successful, two full terms. Um, you know, hailed around the world. And besides, God, I got the travel bug. I'm, I'm Ulysses S. Grant. And he's, and he's hailed as a hero. So he goes on this two-year um, world journey to Japan and Germany and Egypt, and Middle East, everywhere. Comes back and needs a little money. So Grant decides that he's going to um, check out some investments. And his son, Buck, introduces him to a guy named Ferdinand Ward who's one of these like brilliant finance guys. 
And Grant at the time had some money that he had acquired just through various investments. And he made an investment, something on the order of like $150,000, which was a lot of money in those days to fund this this financial firm, essentially as a limited partner. Um, The day-to-day management was gonna be uh, handled by Ferdinand Ward and his friend, Buck was going to be sort of the co-manager. And for the first three years of this business, it was spectacularly successful when they were making money hand over fist. And Grant was thinking, hey, I've made it. I have financial security. Everything's good to go. I've made it. I'm a successful general. Until one day when he's walking in, just imagine you're looking at your 401k. Of course, they didn't have that then, but you know he's he's looking at his returns. Uh, they just show that he's rich beyond his wildest dreams. Until one day, and this is really described poignantly in in the book by Gene Edward Smith. His son has some news from him. I'm going to read from the passage. He walks in, and his his son Buck tells him that Grant and Ward has failed, and Ward has fled. Grant's expression did not change. He turned slowly without saying a word and walked into his office. At five o'clock, he sent for the firm's cashier, a man named Spencer. When the cashier entered the office, he found Grant seated close to his desk, both hands tightly gripped the arms of his chair. His face twitched. Spencer, how it is that that man has deceived us all in this way? Grant rambled on for several minutes and then became silent. The anguish of failure was upon him. I've made it my rule of my life to trust a man long after other people gave him up. I don't see how I can ever trust a man again. So he literally went from thinking he was a multi-multi-millionaire to figuring out that he only had literally $80 to his name. And he was so destitute that um, he actually accepted a couple donations from other people, some some admirers for like a couple thousand bucks. Um, his wife was able to sell a couple houses. So it's unlikely he would have been so destitute that he would have had to sell wood at a street corner, but it was humiliating. You know, he, here he was, everyone knew that he had that he had failed. And of course, a lot of times gifts comes with strings attached. I mean, he had very powerful friends, but there he is having to ask hand in hat, hat in hand, um, you know, for, for money from friends. And he didn't know whether his wife was, you know, going to get that same sort of largesse, but it gets worse. He's a total failure. And later that summer, he's drinking, a, um, has some peaches and a bowl of milk and he feels something burning in his throat. And he suspects that it's cancer. And so here he is, he's been financially humiliated and he discovers that he has, well, at that time it wasn't confirmed cancer, but I think he knew. I mean, even at the time he was a lifelong cigar smoker, and he smoked, you know, several cigars a day during the Civil War when he was so stressed out. And what do you do? What would you do? I mean, uh, gosh, what would any of us do in that situation? Keep in mind that the pain was so bad that every time he ate food, it was like he was pouring molten lead down his throat. Every time he drank a glass of water, it was like, you know, burning hot, you know, grease down his throat. It was that painful. And the only way that he could eat would be able to drug himself up. So what to do? What what value did he have? He did, he did not have any assets. He was totally destitute. Well, Grant, this is another reason why I love him, was very humble. He had been asked to write a biography of the Civil War, essentially to cash in on his fame. And he had always refused. 
he said, why should I do it when there's a guy named Adam Badeau? He's already written the three volume military history of, of the war. So why should I, what can I add? And he also, Grant being Grant, did not want to brag about his accomplishment because he knew it would necessarily be biased. So he figures, maybe I'll just start writing some articles for the Century Magazine and sort of see how that works. And um, so with, with cancer, a diagnosis of cancer, being totally swindled out of his life savings, knowing that he essentially has very little time left to live, he starts to write some articles that are very successful. Eventually, um, Century Press asks him to essentially um, write a, a more in-depth biography. And originally he agrees, but you know, lo and behold, who comes to the rescue? Sam Clement, that is Mark Twain. And Century was going to give him 10% royalty. And Mark Twain enters and he's like, I don't, you, can't, you can't do that. And when he, when he read the contract that, that Grant had handed him, he said, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, he felt that he was totally screwing over Grant. And so essentially, Mark Twain offered him 20% um, of sales or 70% of the profits. Ultimately, Grant took 70% of the profits um, because he didn't want to make any money unless the firm actually made money. And that's classic Grant. So he starts writing and it, it's so painful. And of course, you can't write when you're all drugged up. So Grant essentially avoids opium and the, the drugs while he's writing. He tries to write three to four hours a day. And he continues during this time period when everyone knows that essentially he's you know, likely not going to um, survive for a very long period of time. But he keeps at it. He doesn't give up. And he ultimately is able to finish the book um, nearly days before he died in July 23rd of 1885. And the book, you know, you'd think, well, hey, you know, and it, it was written by Grant. I mean, it, it was in his own hand. It was very similar style to uh, a lot of his battle orders. And how is it reviewed? It, it's considered one of the greatest presidential memoirs in history. Um, Mark Twain described it as, it's a remarkable work of its kind since the commentaries of Julius Caesar. The great literary critic Edmund Wilson compared it to Thoreau's Walden or Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He called it a unique expression of national character, Gertrude Stein. Um, like Wilson, a stern critic, considered it one of the finest books ever written by an American and admired Grant's capacity for watching in silence and commanding without excitement. Now, Edmund Wilson and Gertrude Stein, I mean, they're post-Grant by decades and they had no reason to talk Grant up, but they, they saw genius when they, when, when they, they knew genius when they saw it. And so he gets it done. And not only does he get it done, it's extremely profitable. So essentially Julia's first royalty check is a check for $200,000, which in today's money would have been worth millions. And then eventually it had earned over $450,000 in, in um, remedies, uh, essentially in royalties. And then he leaves uh, with this particular quote, and I'll read it in full because it's so classic Grant. It says, it seems that man's destiny in this world is quite as much as a mystery as it is likely to be in the next. I never, never thought of acquiring rank in the profession for which I was educated, yet it came with two grades higher prefixed to the rank of general officer for me. I certainly never had either ambition or taste for political life, yet I was twice elected president of the United States. 
if anyone had suggested the idea of my becoming an author, as they frequently did, I was not sure whether they were making sport of me or not. I have now written a book, which is in the hands of manufacturers, and I ask you to keep these notes very private, lest I become an authority on the treatment of diseases. I have already too many trades to be proficient at any. So this is just classic Grant. And what I love about that is, you know, so and so many of us would have just given up and would have just said, what, you know, what, it's, it's too much. I, I'm dying. I've been swindled. I'm just going to, I'm just going to give up. What does Grant think about? He doesn't think about himself because I think about himself. He could have just drugged himself up to avoid the pain. He thinks about his family. He thinks about the last gift that he can give his family to make sure that they're financially secure. And he does that until his very dying breath. But friends, that really illustrates the character of U.S. Grant. And I do have a man crush on U.S. Grant because I think there's so many, I think there's so many things to identify with him about. The fact that he was not successful his whole year, but he had these incredible skills in certain domains. The fact that he was so humble, the fact that he was so simple, the fact that he only, um, he really let his actions speak more than his words. And that, you know, when really no one else was looking and he knew that it would only be left to posterity, he spends his last dying days giving the gift of his story, not only to the American people, but to his spouse, Julia, who he loved very much, as well as his children. And that shows the man who U.S. Grant is. Friends, I hope you get an opportunity to read um, Gene Edward Smith's book by U.S. Grant. Um, I do feature it on rackneycole.com. I hope you do click on it. Um, I will get a portion of the proceeds through the Amazon Associates program. But my greatest hope for you is that you get the opportunity to read this book because I think you'll rediscover Grant. And you know, with Ron Chernow, they're, they're talking about him sort of reevaluating uh, how great Grant was and that he really got a raw deal. Gene Edward Smith is at least 20 years earlier than that. And I think, frankly, of the two, Gene Edward Smith is way better. It's, it's, it's that good a book and it's a, it's a page turner and it's so good that it's one that you will read over and over again. So I'm going to continue on. I think Grant's going to enter. I'm going to have a lot of repeating characters on the Rocky cast. U.S. Grant, Bruce Lee, um, Henry, David, Henry David Thoreau. I think I'm going to have Marcus Aurelius. These are going to be repeated guests that we're going to cover because I love great, inspiring people that have interesting stories. And there's a lot to mine with that. And because, as I said in my very first Rocky cast, I can do whatever the hell I'm interested in. And I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Friends, I haven't been promoting a lot all of these Rockney casts lately, in part because I sort of want this little core group. I've been seeing about, there's about 10 or 12 of you that are tuning in. So I appreciate every single one. Now, these are people that are just subscribed because I'm not really promoting these Rockney casts. So let's sort of make it a co-creation. Like if there are topics you want to have covered, if there are ways that you think I can improve the Rockney cast, let me know um, because this, this, this is for you. You know, I was just reading... Seth Godin uh, today on, on, the, on The Practice, which is this really good little book that you can read. And he was basically on, yeah, find what makes you passionate and what you find interesting. But he asked this question, like, who's it for? Well, this is for me to share what I love to you, but I want to make sure that it really resonates with you in the same way that I think it will. And the only way that I can know that is for you to reach out to me. So you hardy group of 10, um, reach out to me, um, Rockney, rockneycast at gmail.com. Uh, most of you probably know me, so you can um, reach out and, and share what your vision is. If there's topics that you'd like to have covered, let me know. Um, it's a true honor that you did tune in if you've made it this far. 
uh, because we're going to be continuing to do these rocking casts. This is my first rocking cast recorded upstairs in my house. Um, I have been doing it outside, but I thought that the uh, birds were getting a little bit distracting. So um, keep me posted on whether you like with the birds or not. Um, so in any event, truly appreciate all of you. Stay tuned for future rocking casts. We're going to be continuing to fo focus on anything that really advanced my interest in mind, body, and spirit. Uh, to, to help you find a joy and exuberant in your own life uh, through the things that I've learned. And I think it's going to be a co-creation between you and me. Much gratitude to every single one of you who's tuned in. Until next time, stay tuned for the Rocky Cast. <laughs>